0: The welding of AI together with a, a person, and uh, and so y- you get somebody whose productivity is massively increased, and they're going to outcompete somebody who doesn't have an AI sidekick.
1: Our philosophy has always been with technologies: where can we add value, right, to to our business and our clients?
2: Do you think that our progress uh, is going to start looking more exponential than it already has looked?
1: Powered by NEI Global Relocation. This is relocation leader the podcast where we help advanced professionals in the world of global mobility. Now, here's your host, Zach Turbis.
2: I'm Zach Turbis, Director of Marketing and Communications at NEI Global Relocation. Uh, We have uh, Dr. Jeremy Gajora here uh, with me, who is an AI expert. And Greg, Keith, our Chief Information Officer at NEI Global Relocation. Jeremy is the Endowed Chair of Artificial Intelligence at Milwaukee School of Engineering. And Jeremy, did you want to say a few words about your background?
0: Sure. I can give you the 30 seconds, right? So I have a PhD in political science. I spent my time in grad school doing research on game theory, which is the applied math of modeling choices. Also did some machine learning, statistics, that kind of thing. Um, and, uh, and then I, uh, I also did some political science, although not very much. Um, after grad school, I went and I worked at the Central Intelligence Agency for nine years, uh, and I, I led a lot of different kind of AI machine learning um, efforts there. I spent two years leading a data science team at a tech startup focused on uh, financial tech, and then I spent another two years leading uh, another data science team at Northwestern Mutual uh, focused on cybersecurity. And now I'm back in academia doing research,
1: teaching students. It's good.
2: Nice. And Greg, did you want to give a little introduction yeah, sure to yourself?
1: You yep. So um, as you said, CIO of NEI Global Relocation. Have a degree in computer science and. Uh over, for over 30 years, been delivering technology solutions for organizations. Um, I had started out my, my career with uh, McGraw-Hill, uh, developing some software for publishing books, and then moved on to uh, ConAgra Foods uh, for um, 18 years, where we were delivering technology solutions for uh, managing the production of food. Um, and then I went to a Berkshire Hathaway company for a while, managing financial transactions and um, helping banks with their portfolio products, and then have been at NEI for over 10 years now I'm uh, working in the relocation industry
2: now you you said you have a black background in political science too how much does that influence how you think about AI I'm just curious Oh that's a good question actually it
0: influences it quite a lot um, in the sense that in um, the social sciences we care a lot about modeling decision making right and actors who are making choices and actually I, that's how I see all of artificial intelligence right I see AI as just a, a big set of tools for automated decision-making purposes, right? You could have an AI that looks at images and figures out what's in the images and it's making decisions about what it sees there, right? You could have an AI that drives a car, it's making decisions about how to turn the wheel. Um, So all of that focus on decision-making stems from my time in social science. And I use it to inform the way I think about research, like even down to the present day, 15 years later.
2: Oh, so first of all, just what is AI?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I think a lot of people define that in different ways. And uh, if you don't pin down what the term means, right, then you end up kind of talking past each other. Uh, but my sense of, of AI is is sort of what I already said. I think it's uh, it, a good way to think of it is as automated decision making. Uh, and you can have a lot of different uh, forms of AI built in different ways to do different tasks. But at the, the root of it all, all of them are, are uh, methods for making decisions without the need for human intervention.
2: How would you sort of, um, if you had to sort of do a genealogy of AI, how would that look? Um, kind of like, how did it start? Where are we now? Where are we going? Sure, yeah. So uh,
0: my sense is that artificial intelligence is not in any sense new, right? It's actually quite, uh, It's actually quite. Um, I don't want to say old, right? But it's got a long kind of uh, uh, history. Uh, people who started doing work in AI started doing that work 80 years ago, uh, in the 1940s, 1950s, and you know the kind of the first people writing on these topics, right? They would have called them artificial intelligence. You know, would have been people like Alan Turing, writing, uh, you know, on comp- computation way back in the 40s. Uh, and so, in that time, right, AI, what they would have thought of AI as any capability that lets a, a computer do what a, a human can do, right? So, any any uh, any capability that lets a, a computer make, make make choices the same way that a human does. Um, and in, in that time, right, there were a lot of uh, – it was It was all very um, – I don't want to use the word primitive, but, you know, it was all kind of very new. And uh, uh, there were a lot of different kind of AI capabilities being developed to do different things. The most famous one that I'm aware of is Arthur Samuel's uh, Checkers Playing AI uh, that um, – Learn to uh, play checkers, not with a huge degree of mastery, but with a passable level of skill, right? So it could beat like an unskilled player and would lose, you know, terribly.
2: Too. You say it could beat me,
0: right? Well, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So, so, uh, so that that's the first thirty years of AI from like the 40s to the 80s, right? When you hit the 80s, you got a lot more, a lot more computing power, um, and so people started to spend a lot of time throwing data at computers uh, and letting the computers learn from the data. Right? That's called machine learning. Uh, and, then, uh, and then another 30 years has gone by and we've hit the, the 2010s and you've got uh, even more increases in computing power. And that's, that led to a uh, focus on a part of machine learning called deep learning that continues right on to the present day up to now. ChatGPT being a great example of a deep learning, uh, deep learning artificial intelligence.
2: What, what's the mechanics of deep learning? Like um, what can it do that previous generations of AI couldn't do?
0: Well, I don't know that it, it, it. I don't know that it does it different tasks. It does the same tasks, It does them better uh, than previous generations of AI. Deep learning is really good at uh, working with like unstructured data, like a book, right? If you want to have an AI that can read a book, deep learning is awesome at that. If you want to have an AI that can look at an image, right, without any kind of like fooling around with the image, right, just give it the picture in its raw form, deep learning is great at that kind of thing.
2: Where does generative AI fit into the equation?
0: Generative AI is usually, uh, is usually well, there's, there's a lot of different ways you can make an AI generative. Uh, when people use the term nowadays, it usually seems to refer to some sort of deep learning model that has been constructed so that its decision-making capability can be used to make new content, right, of one kind or another. Could be new images, could be new texts, right, could be all kinds of different things. Uh, so generative AI is is also not new, right? But in its kind of latest form, it's like the it's sort of the logical uh, next step in the use
2: of deep learning. Okay, so we have this the lay of the land kind of up to that covered. What is artificial general intelligence, and are we headed there anytime soon?
0: Yeah, artificial general intelligence is like the uh, holy grail, right, of uh, computer <laughs> science, right? So, so an AGI would be a kind of AI that would be kind of self adaptive, self learning, able to do any task. Uh, as well as or better than a human can do it, Um, doesn't necessarily mean that an AGI would be like conscious, right, or sentient or something like that. It just, it just, uh, it just means that it's, uh, it's very, very capable self-adaptive and doesn't have any need for human intervention, right, in the way that it learns and grows. Um, So, so my sense is, uh, you know, my sense is that AGI is one of these things that's always like 10 years away, right? Uh, you know, whether it was 20 years ago, you know, and it was 10 years uh, away 20 years ago, and now it's still 10 years away, you know, now. Um, so I don't see it coming anytime soon. And I, I don't, uh, having done this for a while now, done this kind of work, right, I don't even see how it's possible within the current paradigm that we use to build artificial
2: intelligence. So one of my sort of thoughts that I had when this artificial intelligence explosion happened at least when uh, we all became aware of it, was like, you know, is it closer? Is like AGI closer because we will use uh, what we currently have in the form of artificial intelligence to get there? Like, will that sort of be a catalyst to speed it up? But then you said something in your talk um, that said basically it can't surpass what we've already given it, you know? Yeah. So how, how do how do I think about, you know, the timeline for technology moving forward now that AI is part of the equation, and then are we sort of headed inevitably towards uh, AGI?
0: Yeah, that's, those are those are all great questions to which I have no certain answers, right? <laughs> um, I would think you of
2: speculate, make something I, I'll, up. I'll do
0: that. I, I, can, I can speculate with the best of them, right? So, uh, my I think you should kind of think of it as like two bins, right? There's the there's the uh, the everything else bin that's not AI, right, Uh, that could be AI empowered, right? Uh, And then there's the AI bin itself. So researchers have been on this deep learning kick since 2012. Uh, And something like GPT 3.5 or GPT 4.0, the thing that uh, powers ChatGPT, is thought to have, you know, several hundred billion parameters under the hood. And, uh, you know, at some point, you can't just keep throwing more parameters into these models and expecting them to do better, right? There's going to be like kind of a leveling off, right, where the performance just doesn't just doesn't increase, and that's what I meant a minute ago when I said I don't see how it's possible in the current paradigm, right? Because in the current paradigm, what we would do is we just throw more compute, throw more parameters into a, into a model, and it'll somehow get better. Uh, I don't see it, I don't see it working, you know, in in uh, in a qualitatively different way. I don't, I don't see how doing that just, you know, will change will change things in a qualitatively different way. So, I have the sense that development of AI is going to, like, level off, right, in the current paradigm, and we're going to have to find new ways to proceed forward. Um, the rest of it, though, everything else, been right, that's not AI, I think that has the potential to be, like, massively changed and influenced and impacted by the use of AI. So scientific research, right? Business processes, um, you know, self-driving vehicles—all this kind of stuff, right? Has had no, you know, involvement with AI in the past, uh, at least not, you know, not with the latest and greatest AI algorithms in the past, you know. So now is the time, right, for something like ChatGPT, you know, to be adapted to those domains and have a big impact.
2: Nice. So speaking to that, because we're a relocation company, um, sort of our business is helping companies move the people that they have wherever they need to go. Right. And so we deal with jobs and um, you know, speaking to the bin where you have artificial intelligence, either assisting uh, humans or replacing them. um, How do you foresee uh, industries changing going forward? And I'll give you some targets to aim at. So like, if we start with manufacturing, is there any ways that uh, you can sort of forecast, um, maybe generally speaking, what jobs are maybe at risk and what jobs will change, but, um, and maybe education will have to fill the gaps in, in some areas?
0: I actually don't think that uh, the manufacturing sector is going to be one of the larger impacted ones. I, I think the impacts from automation and AI have already happened. In manufacturing, And it's, you can see that like on the, the car assembly line, right? Where you've got a bunch of robotics involved, right? That's maybe AI driven or heuristically driven or whatever, right? But that kind of impact on labor has already happened. I think the, uh, the place where you might see a larger impact is in white collar jobs. And that's, I have a friend who works in Silicon Valley. Uh, he's been there for the last 15 years. And he told me once that every company in Silicon Valley, right, that's trying to do AI stuff, has its its goal to kill the white-collar job, right? To replace it with an automated AI solution. Um, And uh, so I think that's something that people are consciously aiming for. I don't know, though, that... uh, I don't know that that ends in massive layoffs. I don't don't foresee that. I think what happens instead is uh, you have uh, the kind of the welding of AI together with a, a person. And, uh, and so you get somebody whose productivity is massively increased. And they're going to outcompete somebody who doesn't have an AI sidekick, right? But, uh, but I don't think that leads to massive layoff. I think, I think what happens is because the workforce gets more competitive or more productive, right, uh, that uh, you will have less hiring over time rather than a bunch of folks losing their jobs. Right. So it would be like a, an impact on like job growth, right? you know, in, in, in kind of white collar sectors rather than a bunch of people losing their jobs. That's my sense of how it's going to impact things.
2: OK, so um, what happens, you know, I've heard a lot of things around AI and like medical, like doctors helping diagnose things. Is is that going to be impacting? Um, because I, I'm trying to figure out how that would work in terms of like research you know, because the research still needs to be done. And um, I don't see AI doing that. Do doctors take more of like a research role and then um, what they feed into AI then can be used for diagnosis purposes? Or, you know, like, is, is that going to change like the medical sector? And if so, how?
0: Yeah, those are more great, more great questions. I'll tell you, I have a, a, I have a, a growing partnership with the Medical College of Wisconsin right now on kind of exactly the kind of project you described where we have a bunch of uh, information, right, about uh, patient histories that's been, like, de-identified, right, anonymized, and we want to use some sort of machine learning algorithm or artificial intelligence uh, method to create diagnoses, right, based on that data so that a doctor, right, or a med student, right, or a resident or an intern or somebody standing at a patient's bedside doesn't have to keep in memory a hundred different physical signs of something, right? They can you know, kind of offload some of that work, because that's just beyond the ability of anybody to do right, effectively. Uh, so so we got, we got these kinds of things going on right now. I think I'm not special in that way. There's a lot of people who are interested in building AIs that are aimed at diagnosing different kinds of things, like an AI that can look at a EKG signal right, and make a call about someone going into AFib or something like this. Um, there's a lot of interest in doing that kind of thing. At the same time, if you if you if you ask people right you know do you want ai involved in your medical right uh you know your medical life right like 86% of people say no so so i think there's some uh, uh, yeah i mean i i, I yeah so I, no it wasn't ai right but uh, i think i think it's it's one of those things where there's some real hurdles to overcome right uh in terms of trust uh in terms of um you know in terms of efficacy uh because uh these these kind of these diag- these diagnoses right are difficult to to do for a professional right doctor, uh, and we all we can do with AI is encode what a doctor already knows how to do right. So, um, so we're going to have to get better data. You know that's going to require kind of more conscious data collection by medical professionals. It, it's a, there's a lot of work to be done, but I do think people are aiming in that direction.
2: Mm-hmm. And I'm just kind of thinking out loud right here, when you have. A doctor sort of working with AI so that it remembers all those things it gives you what it thinks uh, could be and you're sort of a check and balance on the AI and, and earlier you said for complex issues you better be an expert yourself right you know if if you're going to be working with AI so you know just thinking about that it's not like not like it would replace doctors but it would make them more uh effective. proficient yeah
0: effective and make them more effective I will say though that that specific comment was for ChatGPT.
2: Okay. ChatGPT
0: yeah. does not have a good sense of like truth, mm-hmm. right, or correctness. That's just not what it's designed to do. It's designed to have conversations,
2: right? Uh, it has made so many things up on me.
0: Right? Yeah. No, Hundred <laughs> percent. Right. And, Very entertaining. So yeah. there, there <laughs> are other AI uh, machine learning algorithms, right, that do try to build in a sense of truth and correctness, right, in the way that they're constructed. And I think those would be the kind of things you'd want to draw on for like medical diagnoses and things like that.
2: You said something to the effect of, um, well, there, there are ways that you can use AI that uh, are beneficial for businesses, and then there's ways that you shouldn't use AI. So you said, like, don't don't AI everything. Yeah, right?
0: I mean, wh- what I would say there is, you know, you, you, uh, you, you don't want to start by saying, you know, what should we use AI for? You should start with a problem, right? Start with a well-defined problem. This is annoying me. I hate this, right? This process takes... 15 days out of every month, you know, uh, you know, I, I don't like this. I need to fix it. Right. Start with a problem, just like you would any, any with anything else. Right. AI is not special in that way. Start with a problem, and then you know you can figure out what kind of resources you throw against the problem. And any one of those resources is AI. Uh, and so that, I mean that's what I would say. Like, is you don't want to, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to like like you said, right? You don't want to think, oh, how can I AI today? Right? You want to think about here's a problem that's annoying. Right, and what's in my toolkit to solve that problem? Oh, AI is one of those things. Let me deploy that against this. I think that's the way to go about it, right? And and then the other thing you want to do is make sure that all the relevant people are in the conversation right from the beginning, so nobody gets surprised, right? Like you may think you have an idea about how to solve this problem, but you sit over here on this team, and this other team actually owns that problem, and they don't want anything to do with what you've you know what you've come up with. That's not a recipe for success, right? Even if you've got the best artificial intelligence machine learning solution in the world, right, that's not going to be a recipe for success. So you want to make sure that you're doing everything in a consensual fashion, bringing folks along. And that's the the only way to make it successful in a business context, I think.
2: I'm thinking I heard you also say something to the effect of um, there doesn't have to be sort of like proprietary security concerns uh, inherently in uh, like long long language models, right?
0: Yeah, so I think there's... um, there's, there's a couple of ways to run big AI models. Right? You can run them in an online sense where they're constantly learning from the data that you're supplying to them as you use them. Or you could run them in like an offline sense where they've been trained, constructed, they're fixed, closed systems. You bring them in, you use them, and they don't change. right? They don't learn from you. They're not doing anything with your information. Um, so you know, I think large language models can be run in either way. Right, so chat, so ChatGPT runs in a, a largely offline sense. Uh, at least that's my 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 understanding of it. Right, my speculative understanding of it, given that it's a proprietary system. Right, yeah. it, it runs in a largely offline sense that's periodically updated, um, kind of with pretty low frequency, like every few months or something like this. They periodically update it, and what that means is that it's not constructed so that when you're giving it prompts, it's like immediately. Grabbing those prompts, putting them in its memory, and keeping them forever—right? That's not really what it's doing. OpenAI might decide to do that, right? But that's a policy choice. Mm-hmm. It's not like intrinsic to the way the model has to be constructed and, and run. Um, so I think whenever you, you're using those models that are kind of offline, right, that are already built, you know, that are closed and they're not kind of learning from you, uh, you should be able to use them in a way that's like safe. That doesn't involve compromising, right? Proprietary or confidential information, and coding it in the model, right? And letting it out, right? Accidentally from the walls, right? Of your business, um, it's those online capabilities you want to worry more about because online models are very definitely taking your information and encoding it in some way in their memory, right? And and then you can lose control of it, right? And it can go outside of where you want it to be, and yeah,
2: yeah. So, Greg, I'm. Curious, um, what, what has been your philosophy uh, thinking about AI and how we're integrating it into our business? Um, where, do you, where did you start and explain your approach?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a really good question because a lot of what Jeremy's talking about is really trying to find a, a value and a use uh, of AI within your organization. So our, our philosophy has always been with technologies, where can we add value? Right to to our business and our clients, we don't want to just pay for technology because it's it's the right you know it's something that we want to do to be competitive. It's it's adding value. So the way that's how we approach all of our technology, whether it be automation technology or as we look at ways to further leverage AI, for example. And we have some very small uh, use cases of AI that we're using today. Um, nothing to the scale that you're describing. But, but what it demonstrates is our uh, that our, with, with our strategy and our approach, we understand the value, it's an opportunity to improve our business. So for example, the problem for us is answering questions when our clients ask us a question, right? So we have an entire team of operations, uh, team members that take calls, take emails, answer the same questions over and over and over again. What a great opportunity to solve that problem, right? So if we can come up with a solution, whether it be on our, our Global Gateway portal, or in our back office systems that can go look up that answer within seconds, right? So whether it be an infer- a question about our li- relocating transferees, what- when is my pack load date? You know, one when- when of the-, the drivers is going to show up to do this for me, right? So now it probably takes most of a 15 minutes. Somebody has to call up, talk to our, talk to our operations team. Um, they look it up on our system. We answer the question, right? Or can I just use chat? AI to say, answer this question for me, right? So to do that, we, we would definitely have to secure that information, right? It would have to be an offline model to, 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 to um, uh, ensure the security of our, our clients' uh, information, right? We would teach it everything about our client's relocation program, the relocation packages, um, everything that we would need to accurately answer those questions, right? We can't use a public, the ChatGPT solution because the 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 answers are just not accurate for what we do, you know, and in, in moving people around around the globe. So, what we would also be looking at is how can we integrate that solution with our back office system. Um, a lot of our questions are very specific about. Uh, an employee that we, we are relocating, right? So we need to be able to have that that chat in um, exchange be in a way that provides accurate answers, right? So a lot of it is discovery for us. Um, we've been resisting the pressure from from different angles to say, just do whatever you can in, in AI, right? And we're saying, where can we add the value? So that's where we're starting with.
2: Yeah, it has to serve a business need. Right, right,
1: yeah. yeah. And 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 I just want to add a little bit more to that because I think Jeremy, you, you made a really good point, which is, what are the what are the benefits of AI, right? Well, one of them can be efficiencies in your back office, right? So I've been talking about how we can offload those those Q and A's from our operations team, right? Then then what we do, I and mean, we we bundle a, a lot of our automation technologies to to kind of take that mundane work away from our our workers, right? So that way we free them up to do more value-added work. Um, but the other great benefit is that it improves job satisfaction for any IT member. So we're looking at a lot of ways to do that.
2: Yes. Um, Jeremy, I have a few questions for you that I hope, I'm, I was like really crossing my fingers hoping that your political science background and your AI capabilities could tell me the answers to some of these questions. No. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really want to know sort of how how could AI... Influence the relationships that countries have with one another in the future, because those relationships um, a lot of the times lead to business and and growth and peace, you know. And so, I was just wondering if you had any takes on that that you'd like to share.
0: I, I mean, I think I think there's push and pull effects, right, with things like AI. On the on the pull side, meaning pulling countries together, right, to have closer, you know, more peaceful relationships. Uh, Big companies, right, that develop artificial intelligence capabilities have, um, you know, interests all over the world, right, and um, and that can be like a driver, right, that kind of economic relationship, right, you know, for a country that's headquartered in the U.S., right, but it has right interests, you know, in Beijing, right, you know, in in, uh, in Tokyo, right, all over the world, right. That company is going to have a strong interest in making sure that there are specific happy relationships between the, the relevant you know countries involved. Um, and, uh, and I think in that way, right, uh, the, com- the companies that uh, build AI capabilities can be a driver for, you know, for, uh, for good relationships between countries. Um, so there's the pull effect, right, or potential pull effect. Um, I also think that uh, AI, uh, AI may be a good uh, way for people from different backgrounds to understand each other right? Uh, you can go and ask ChatGPT. GPT, what about this interesting culture that I don't know anything about right now? Can I learn about it, right? It might be an avenue for, you know, learning stuff, right, that you don't already know. With all those caveats before about ChatGPT's like, you know, kind of loose relationship with the truth, right? Mm-hmm. Um, on, the, on the push side, right, I think there's also potentially maybe a lot of uh, competition for control, right, of something like AI, something that's as powerful, you know, and potentially impactful as AI is. Uh, and I could certainly imagine that different countries adopt different standards of governance uh, with, uh, with respect to AI, right? The last thing anybody wants is for some, some other country with loose controls over scientific research to accidentally build an AGI that turns into Hell 9000, right, uh, and kills a bunch of people, right? That's the last thing they want to have happen, right? So I could imagine that there will be disagreement and conflict, right, about regulation, right, and governance, right, in the same way that there is about climate change.
2: What's the first step there where that's concerning? Because it seems like me with when you get multiple countries involved, all serving different interests, you know, um, a lot of those uh, regulations are voluntary. You know, they're they're agreed to um, it's almost like a least common denominator effect. So what would be the first step uh, with regards to regulations and AI that everyone could possibly agree to?
0: I mean, I think the first step would have to be the need to agree that it should be regulated, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that that it that it's uh, that it's an important important capability to have some oversight on. Um, and we've in in the history of humanity, right? We've done that before, right? We decided, you know, after the first World War, we're not going to use chemical weapons, right? We decided after World War II, we're not going to use nuclear weapons for the most part, right? So we've done that before, right? With you know really big powerful capabilities. Um, but I think the first step is, is a realization, you know, that uh, that this needs to be controlled and regulated. And with the other two examples I just gave you, right, the governments involved had in-your-face data, right, about exactly how horrific these things were. Right? We don't have that with AI yet. So, uh, so my hope is that we can come to that kind of realization that for the need for regulation, right, before something horrific happens, right? And uh, and you know and. Um, and be anticipatory, right, rather than reactive.
2: If you were basically advising a panel of countries on, you know, say they have all sat down, they agree that AI should be regulated, what would be the next step after that in your, like, how would you advise them over the course of the next 30 years to steward AI in a fashion that would lead to flourishing and peace rather than, you know, what you just described?
0: (laughs) Yeah, uh, let's avoid that one, right? Okay. right. So, I, I mean, I think, I think the, um, the first things that you're going to have to do, whether it's uh, a U.S. state government, right, interested in regulating AI or the federal government here in the U.S. or an you know, international commission of different countries, you have to start answering some hard questions, right? What is AI, right? The very first one you asked, right? What is AI? What's behind the regulation boundary and what's not? You know, and then I think you have to start thinking about, you know, which groups, right, do we want to worry about? Do we want to worry about a scientific research lab at a university right, that has NSF funding? You know, do we want to, do we want to you know, you know, regulate that group? Are we worried mostly about you know, big production level, large language model AIs right, that are going to be used by 100 million people? Right? What's the scale at which we want to be intervening and regulating? Uh, and then what's the regulatory vehicle? Right? It, do you get a license right, to build AI? License to use AI, right? Uh, license to kill, yeah. right? You know that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, what's the regulatory vehicle, right? These are hard questions that you know the hard, detailed questions about the specifics of how regulation would be defined, right? Created, enforced, right, etc. That I think any group that wants to take this up is going to have to you know worry about trying to answer. Otherwise, you're going to create you know something that's ineffective, right? That can't be enforced, and that really does nothing. Um,
2: that's. Way better to talk about it now while we're in our infancy sure. than to try and deal with it. We're on the when we're on the cusp of doing something we shouldn't do. Hundred percent. Yeah. How will you will humans use AI and uh, in the future that might influence maybe where they live, what they do, and who they associate with. Maybe um, you know how just how they live their life. Like how are they going to think about those things um, in a way that might be different than. Uh, what we've experienced in the last hundred years.
0: I I I think that you know, this is actually a uh, you know an interesting interesting question for um mobility relocation right company right where people are going to live and, and how they're going to how they're going to kind of reach their professional you know uh, professional work environments. I have the sense that AI may create like larger spheres, right, in which people can kind of live, right, and still work like within the sphere, right. So, you saw this with COVID, right, for example, um, where uh, where people, you know, all of a sudden they have to commute anymore, right. So there's much less need for them to be, you know, close to their location, right, close to their business location. Uh, so you could imagine something like a self-driving car, like in the movie Minority Report, they had all those self-driving cars from way back in the you know early two thousands. So I, I don't mind living in the exurbs of Washington, D.C., right? If I've got a self-driving car, that can take me down 66, right? It's
2: your reading time.
0: Yeah, right? Exactly. It's my reading time. It's my relaxing time. It's when my kids don't bother me, right? Um, if, you know, and, and I think that's, you know, that's maybe one of the futures, right, or one of the potential effects of AI is to kind of broaden the, the you know, the area over which someone can kind of exist, right, but still be connected, right, you know, within yeah, that's, that's my sense of it anyway.
2: Can you envision a future where generative AI, or not generative AI, um, artificial general intelligence and Neuralink exist in the same sphere? And what does that look like?
0: Well, I guess it would look like you having an AI sidekick implanted in your brain, right? Is it a sidekick
2: or a control? Yeah, I mean, well, that's what yeah. you got to
0: really worry about, right? Yeah. Be, be very careful to avoid the, uh, the second right outcome there.
2: So the, the reason I ask that question is, you know, uh, It seems to me like we're headed towards um, artificial general intelligence at some point in the future. Like, it just seems like it's so many people's goals. We've gotten this far. um, And if if it's in the crosshairs of so many people, I imagine we'll probably figure it out someday, right? And then you also have, like with Elon Musk and Neuralink, uh, a desire to basically integrate um the technological capacity that we have accumulated thus far into us and make us make it part of each other but then i i foresee sort of those as uh almost like playing chicken with each other and i don't know if they're gonna budge you know
0: i think that i mean i think those are very complimentary things right yeah
2: like- okay yeah, they can be yeah,
0: they, they can be a very complimentary thing right you know it, it's in some sense, the the idea of Neuralink, you know, outside of something like giving, you know, a paraplegic the ability to walk again, right? The idea of Neuralink okay. is not really... I don't think it's qualitatively different than, like, me having my phone with an AGI on my phone, okay. right? It's just a delivery vehicle, you know, in some sense. And that's as close as it gets, right, to being, you know, you know with you all the time, right? Mm-hmm. But it's just a delivery vehicle, um, you know, where I, I can... ChatGPT's API at OpenAI.com or .org, right, is just a delivery vehicle as well, right? And, and they're not they're not different from each other in a qualitative sense. They're just different in the, in that you know, ChatGPT's API is not always with you right now. Whereas if you had an AI you know on a neural link embedded in your head, right, it would be. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I view them as as complementary, right? In the sense that an uh, uh, implant strategy like that would would just really make AI more available to you than it you know than it is right now.
2: Do you think that our progress uh, is going to start looking more exponential than it already has looked?
0: No, actually, I, I, uh, I, think, I, I think I said this earlier, right? I think, that I, I think that our progress in the current AI paradigm is going to taper off. Okay. I think that's what's going to happen. The current paradigm being deep learning, um, being training AIs using things like loss functions and lots of compute cycles and data. Um, I, think, I think that's going to taper off. Um, I think there is going to have to be some kind of shift, right, from what we currently do to some other strategy for building these things, right, if you want to see exponential growth. Yes. Mm-hmm. You can check back yes. in in five years and see if okay. I...
2: Okay, yep.
0: <laughs> we'll mark that one down. Check exactly. it out.
2: <laughs> well, you've certainly given us a lot to think about, and I want to thank you so much for taking this time uh, to get together with us and, and uh, let us pick your brain.
1: So. Yeah, thanks, Jeremy. My
2: pleasure. it been great. Yep.
1: This has been Relocation Leader, the podcast where we help professionals advance in the world of global mobility. Find our episodes and the video version in the podcast show notes and listen wherever you listen to podcasts. Until next time.